Good morning. How are you? Good. Uh, let's stand and pray, and I believe we need to dismiss the children for catechism. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather today. Um, we thank you for our religious and civil liberties that we have currently. I pray, God, that we would take advantage of them as we gather to worship, to pray, to study, but also to go out and to share your gospel. I pray, Lord, for uh, you to teach us today. Enlarge our hearts, Lord. Enlarge our vision uh, for what you desire to do in us and through us. And we pray this not for our sake, but for the sake of Jesus Christ, whom we love and serve. And we pray in his name. Amen. Can be seated. Open, if you would, to, to Matthew 9. Um, actually, we're not going to just look at one text today. We're going to look at, at quite a number of scripture, different scriptures. Is that okay? You like the Bible? You like the Bible, say amen. amen. All right, well, you came to the right place today because we are a Bible church. We believe in the Bible. Actually, we believe in the one who wrote the Bible. We're going to come to, we're going to come to, well, we'll just read Matthew 9. Okay. In Matthew 9, verse 36, I spoke in this text at the, at the uh, Foundations Conference, and uh, it, it led me to uh, be thinking along certain lines, which I want to share with you today. In verse uh, 35, it says, Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered like sheep, having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest." Uh, the church of Jesus Christ, of which we are part, is called to fulfill what is called the Great Commission, which is found in Matthew 28 and, and Luke 24 and Acts 1, some of which we'll look at later. Uh, and one of the critical keys to the fulfillment of the Great Commission, to the success of the gospel, as you say, is prayer. Real prayer, constant prayer, believing prayer for the souls of men and women to come to Jesus Christ. What we see in the Bible is in the history of God's people, is that God does a mighty work when there's a mighty yearning to see him work. Let me say it again. God does a mighty work when there's a mighty yearning for him to work. When you read the history of revivals, and I would encourage you, you can just go online and type in history of revival. You get hundreds of articles. What you see in every case of revival is there's always a small group of people, sometimes two old ladies in a church, that earnestly prayed for revival. The prayer always preceded revival. And revival then is a quickening of God's people, but it's also a conversion of the unsaved. Now sometimes those two things go together because the professing people of God are often a mixture, some of which are actually not saved, although they're church people. And I, I told you the story recently when I spoke at a church in Illinois Three generations were there, and, and, I, and at the end of the service, I gave the gospel, which they never do in their church, um, so I broke custom, I broke their tradition, and um, I, forget, I forget how many people, a dozen, maybe two dozen, but many, many, many people acknowledged that morning receiving Jesus Christ, old, middle-aged, and young, some in every generation. But see, they were, they were good church people. They went to church every week, so it was kind of assumed they were all Christians. In fact, they weren't born again. They weren't saved. So when God revives, 
he, he not only quickens the believer, he then, he then saves the unbeliever. But not only in the midst of God's people, but he saves the unbeliever outside the church and then brings them into the church and makes them part of the body of Christ. All throughout history we see this pattern. Uh, we see it, for example, with Israel and Egypt. If you read their history, it says that they prayed to God mightily. They were in bondage. They prayed to God generation after generation. They cried out to the Lord, and then the Lord heard their prayer. We see it with Nehemiah. When Nehemiah comes and he sees the ruins of the, the wall, and, he, and he, what is he, what's the first thing that Nehemiah did? Did he call an architect? The first thing Nehemiah did is Nehemiah got down on his face and he prayed. And then we see God do a mighty work in him and in the people. We see all throughout Scripture this pattern, and we see it in church history. When God's people sincerely and earnestly pray for God to do a mighty work, then God does a mighty work. Spurgeon said, those who bring souls to Christ are those who first of all have felt an agony, agony of desire that souls should be saved. Amen. And I believe he's right. Why is this? Why, why does God wait, if you will, for our prayers? It, it doesn't really make logical sense. God can do what he wants. God is sovereign. We say, well, God wants to save people, so I guess God will just save people. Well, the fact of the matter is, God works according to what the Westminster Confession calls secondary means. God works, but he uses things, he uses people, he uses practices, if you will. It's called the order of nature, but it's God working through. Uh, as we like to say, no pain, no gain, right? I want to be, be trim, I want to be good looking, I want to have the six-pack abs. Well, guess what? It's never going to happen. Because I'm not willing to go through the pain. I'm just being honest. Okay? Just being honest. So, you know, when we said, boy, I'd sure like to lose weight. Really? Well, no, not really. Would I like to lose weight? Well, I say that, but not really. Because if I did, I'd go to the gym. I quit eating cheese its every night. Okay? No pain, no gain, right? No travail, no revival. No labor pains, no childbirth. Prayer is the, in the spiritual realm is what work is in the physical realm. No labor means no produce. No prayer means no converts. It's simply the order of nature. Uh, secondly, uh, Spurgeon would argue that, that praying for souls is important because it prepares the church to take care of those souls once they're saved. He says the church that's never travailed, or meaning praying for the lost, should God send her a hundred converts, would be unfit to train them. In other words, they don't care about them, so they wouldn't take care of them. So, so we need to pray for the lost as, as preparation for when God brings them in, then that we can have a heart to train them and nurture them. Of course, the obvious reason we need to pray, the church must pray in order for evangelism to be effective, is because only God can save a soul. Let me say it again. Only God can save a soul. Now, when I say this, it's possible to mishear what I'm saying. So I want to I make sure I'm clear. Because, now, now maybe you heard what I said. 
Only God can save a soul. Did you hear that? Okay, you heard that. Now, the problem is, is the deduction you make from that, right? Because you can make the deduction, only God can save a soul, therefore, I don't need to pray. Only God can save a soul, therefore, I don't need to witness. Only God, you get what I'm saying? William Carey, you know who William Carey is? Google him. Considered the father of modern missions. He was a friend of William Wilberforce. He went to India. He was basically a cobbler, a shoemaker. He went to India and uh, labored there in his entire adult life. His, his wife was bedridden for numerous years. Several of his children died there. He, he labored and labored and labored and labored. Before he went, he, he stood up in a meeting in his church back in England, and he started talking about the heathen, as they called them then. We don't use that word much because it's offensive, right? The heathen, the heathen in India. And, and one of the people in leadership said, said to him, young man, sit down, because God will convert the heathen if he wants to in his good time. Only God can save a soul. Therefore, let's we don't need to worry about souls. God will save us. If God wants to save a soul, he'll save a soul. Not so. Why? God uses secondary means. The gospel is the means that God has given to the church. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. And, and the, the, the failure in evangelicalism regarding church, not church growth, but kingdom growth, soul growth, conversion growth, is a crisis of faith in the power of the gospel. Because we see the gospel prosper in Africa, we see we prosper in Asia, we see it prosper in different areas, but in America the gospel does not prosper. It's a crisis of faith, because we, we no longer believe the gospel is truly the power of God to salvation. So you see, if we believe the gospel saves, then we can share the gospel in faith, believing, and God will honor his gospel. Amen. He will honor the gospel. The gospel is the means that God uses to bring forth the new birth. It's compared in the word to a seed that generates life. Yes, it's true. Only God can save a soul. Therefore, we must pray to God to give us souls. That's the logical conclusion. And of course, as we lean on God in prayer, God receives all the glory, amen? Paul says, we have this treasure, and the treasure is the gospel specifically he's talking about. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power will be of God. It'll be obvious that it's God that is working. He, gets, he gives the increase, and he gets the glory. Amen? So Jesus here in Matthew 9, and I think it's striking that, that when, he, when he talks here about the field being plentiful, uh, the first thing he says is prayer. That's the first thing he says. And this is before he sent them out. Now, in the next chapter, he begins to send them out. But, but it's striking that he mentions prayer first. And um, what we see in Scripture is when, when God's people pray, certain things happen. 
Um, first of all, the obvious thing is, as Jesus said, if, you, if we pray for workers, then we will see workers. Because God will move people's hearts to... Uh, God will give people a burden for souls, if you will, and he will begin to move people uh, to share the gospel. Um, but this is a product of prayer and of God, the work of God's Holy Spirit in the hearts of God's people. A second thing that happens is the manifestation of God's power through prayer. Look at, um, look at Acts 1. You all know this, but we need to re- refresh our memories here. In Acts chapter 1, we have... The really another version of, of the Great Commission. In verse 4, And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem. He is Jesus. But to wait for the promise of the Spirit, which he said, You have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons, which the Father has put into his own authority. As a footnote, it is really funny here, because Jesus is telling them, hey, the Father's going to give you the Holy Spirit. This is really a good thing, right? God, the Father's going to give you power from on high. That's a good thing, right? Right? They want to talk about Israel's. They want to have a theology class. They wanted to distract from the mission. Jesus says, that's not for you to know, and it's not for now. But, verse 8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you, and you will be witness to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus says here to pray, and as we know, they go and they go into a prayer meeting, they pray for many days, the Holy Spirit's given to the church, and in Acts 2, we see them gathered for, for uh, um, breaking of bread, and the apostles' teaching, and prayer, and worship, and so we see that God, in response to prayer, provides power. Remember what we just said, only God can save a soul, Right? Only God, but God uses the gospel, God uses people, but God needs to use people that have his power, the power of his spirit. Here's what Spurgeon said, you want to hear it? Who doesn't want to hear Spurgeon? (laughs) Until our churches honor the Holy Spirit, we will never see him abundantly manifested in our midst. Now, if I didn't tell you this was Spurgeon, some of you would say, this must be a raving charismatic. We must honor the Spirit. Unless we put Him first, He will never make crowns for us to wear. He he will get victories, but we will have honor of them. But if we do not give Him the honor, He will never give us the privilege and success. And best of all, if we would have the Holy Spirit, listen, listen, let us meet together earnestly to pray for Him. Remember the Holy Spirit will not come to us as a church unless we seek him. Amen. Amen. To have the power of the Spirit means the church must pray, I believe individually, but also corporately, and earnestly seek the Spirit's power. Not for the experience of the power, not for religious jollies, 
spiritual fun time at church, but to be empowered to fulfill the commission. Secondly, or should I say thirdly, workers, power. Thirdly, we need to pray because through prayer we gain boldness. Look at Acts 4. If you turn to Acts chapter 4, persecution had started. Peter was brought before the Sanhedrin. He's finally let go, and it says in verse 23 of chapter 4, and being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they had heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord. They prayed. Their response to persecution, they prayed and said, Lord, you are God. You made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them who by the mouth of your servant David has said, why did the nations rage and the people imagine a vain thing or plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand. The rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching forth your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. They spoke the word with boldness because they were filled with the Holy Spirit. The, the, one of the recurring themes that we, you hear over and over and over when you talk about evangelism in the modern church is fear. 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 People are afraid to open their mouth for Jesus. They're afraid they'll be criticized. They'll, 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 they're afraid they'll be ridiculed. And as I pointed out recently in a previous sermon, when Scripture talks about the need for boldness, these people were literally losing their life. I understand fear, that kind of fear. But for some of us, the fear is fear of a snare, a sneer, fear of a, a giggle. What does Paul say? Act like men. Act like men. Come on. Someone's going to snicker at you? Come on. We need the Holy Ghost, amen? amen. And, and, and as we are filled with the Holy Spirit, that the, the Spirit gives boldness and he conquers that innate fear of man. The fear of man, which Proverbs says is a snare. It's a snare. Fourthly, we pray, and, and God gives guidance. Go to Acts chapter 10. I love this story. If we had time, we, we, we would read the whole thing, but we don't. But I'm gonna make a, uh, we're going to have to summarize here. In Acts 10, this is where God reveals to Peter that the gospel was, was to go to the Gentiles. Now, we Gentiles read Scripture and forget how Jewish this all really is. Okay? Especially Acts. Because here they are, the very first thing they say, Jesus is saying, hey, God wants to give you the Holy Ghost. And I'm like, let's talk about Israel. I mean, it's very Jewish, right? So it is, it's astounding. But up until this Acts 10, Peter is still thinking the gospel is only for Jews. Even though in the commission, what did Jesus say? 
Jerusalem, Samaria, or Judea, Samaria, the uttermost part. Well, that's the Gentiles, right? He didn't get it. So God, so, so Peter goes up, what is Peter doing in chapter, chapter 10, verse 9? says, and the next day as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the house top to do what? To pray. So he's praying. And while he's praying, God then gives him a vision, uh, or it says he fell into a trance. But God shows him through a mental picture of clean and unclean animals in a sheet. God shows him that the gospel was supposed to go to the Gentiles. Now, what's really striking about this is as you read the text, you realize Peter, even though he got a vision, he still didn't understand it. He's like, oh, so prejudiced was his mind against the Gentiles. So conditioned by his society, are you hearing me? That he wasn't thinking the thoughts of God. So like us. So like us. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, God could never, and then you fill in the blank. Like, what? The only thing God can't do is sin. God can do anything. There's no, no obstacle too great for God. There's no problem too great for God. There's no need too great for God. There's no person, are you listening? There's no person you know that God can't save. It's true. But man, we have blinders on. We're like Peter. No, only the Jews. Not only religious people, God. Only nice people. Only white people. Are you hearing me? Man, God's trying to give him a vision of the universal gospel for all men and women, regardless of their, their nationality, their race, their age, their gender. The God, God's gospel is for all people. So he, he has Cornelius send a messenger to Peter. Peter's like, okay, I'll go. He goes with Cornelius. I mean, he's still not really getting this thing. And he goes, and there's a gathering of, of devout Gentiles, and he preaches the gospel, and something phenomenal happens. You know what happens? The Holy Spirit falls on them. In other words, they get saved, and it's obvious they're getting saved. And Peter's like, oh, now I get the vision. Now I get it. And then he had to actually go and defend what he did to the other apostles. He had to defend preaching to the Gentiles. Whew, man. But as we pray, God gives guidance regarding the propagation of the gospel. And I think this is a very important thing as the church seeks to move forward with the Great Commission. Because there are many ways to evangelize. There are many different techniques, if you will. There are different areas. But the important thing is that an a, a individual and a community is following the leading of the Holy Spirit in this matter. Because God has many people in this city. God has many people in this state. God has many people in this country to save. And we need to listen to God's guidance to reach those people i got to tell you the story. So Lauren and I are out to dinner this week, and we uh, were sitting there and talking, and I'm like, 
we're ready to get ready to pay. I'm like, oh man, I left. I don't have a Gospel John on me. I left it in my car. I have I have to keep a bunch in my car, but I didn't have it in my pocket. Because well, good old Lauren had a life book right there. So Lauren was ready. I wasn't. So as we're starting to pay, you know, with the with the waitress, Lauren gave her the life book and said, started sharing with her about how Jesus changed his life. I think he said something like, "Have you ever read the Gospel of John?" And she said no. But what's striking about the conversation is that she said something to the effect, not an exact quote, but something to the effect that since my boyfriend's accident, I've been thinking about God. I'm like, accident? So they were out canoeing. This is fairly recently. They were out canoeing. And they, her boyfriend, they'd gotten out of the canoe, and apparently were, you know, up in the woods or whatever. And her boyfriend got hit by a train, cut off both his legs. I know, I'm like, it's just tragic. And she's telling us the story, I'm like, God is working in this woman's heart. That cause her to begin to say God? You know what I'm saying? Not God. Not bitter, but open actually. Questioning. I know. Hallelujah. It was, it was amazing to, to watch her and how open she was to the gospel and, and to reading the gospel of John and to sharing her story. There are people like that, and I'm gonna, I've been praying for her actually, and I'm going to go back there and follow up. There's people like that everywhere. They have stories, man. Because God is working in their lives. God is trying to draw them into the kingdom. And he wants to use us to reach them. So we need guidance. We need guidance. We can waste a lot of time doing things that are not productive if we're not guided by the Holy Spirit. So we need to to be in prayer to receive the Spirit's guidance. Here's a great example of that. Look at Acts 13. We saw the case of Peter, but down in Acts 13, in verse 1, it says here, now in the church that was in Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And they, as they ministered to the Lord, that's the New King James, some versions say, as they worshiped the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So they fasted and prayed and laid hands on them and then sent them away. So in other words, they they were praying, they were worshiping, they were ministering to the Lord, and as they were doing it, the Lord spoke to them and gave them specific guidance regarding the the advancement of the kingdom. And then this is a perfect example of what Jesus talked about in Matthew 9. Pray for the Lord to send out workers. Right? Those workers may be overseas. Those workers may be down the street. The point is, is that as we pray, God can give specific guidance. And let me tell you something on an individual level. There's nothing more exciting than being guided by the Holy Spirit. If you spend time in prayer, and if you say, Lord, 
Is there somebody at my, at my place of employment that, that you're drawing? Lord, Lord, make me sensitive. Make me aware. Lord, look, and be open to the Lord. You, you will be astounded at how the Holy Spirit can guide you. I mean, it's, it's truly miraculous. And it's supposed to be miraculous. Another example, and we'll close with this. We need to be in prayer for God's intervention and his protection. Look at Acts 16. There's two, there's two things in Acts 16, but uh, look at uh, 16.25. It says, but at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. So here we are. The situation is that Paul and Silas are thrown in prison. Now, I don't know about you, but if that happened to me, I would consider it a setback. If I was in prison, I would say, I think I'm not in God's will. That can't be God. God doesn't want me to go to prison, does he? Well, here they are in prison, and lo and behold, it was God's will. Because God had people in the prison he wanted to save. Right? Well, how are you going to save the prisoners if you're not in the prison? How's God going to save your co-workers if you're not at work? How's he going to save? How? You have to be where the lost are, right? So they're in prison, and what are they doing? They're writing the governor and complaining. Nope. Appealing to the Supreme Court. Nope. What are they doing? They're praying. They're praying and singing hymns, it says. Prayer and worship, prayer and worship, prayer and worship. And everybody's listening to them. Man, I read one of the most poignant stories I've ever read. Anybody know who Watchman Nee is? He's a, a, a phenomenal leader in the Chinese church. He's got a couple of doctrinal things that I think are a little odd, but by and large, I mean, just the way the Lord used him in China is phenomenal. Well, he, when the communists took over in China, they threw him in prison. And he actually lived the rest of many, 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 many years there, and he died there. Um, and, but there are stories that came out of that prison of, of every day hearing Watchman Nee singing hymns, just praising God in this prison cell every day. That's faith. Amen? It says, suddenly, in verse 26, there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were loose. Didn't we sing that song? Break the chains. And the keeper of the prison... Awakening from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Why would he do that? Because a, a Roman guard who permitted a, a, a prisoner to escape would be executed. That was the punishment for your failure. So like, well, I'm just going to kill myself then. But Paul called with a loud voice saying, do, do yourself no harm, for we are all here. So, so, there's an earthquake, and, and the door's open, but they don't leave. I don't know about you, but if I was in prison and the door's open, I'd be the first person out the door. <laughs> Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light, ran in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? This guy needed a freaking earthquake to get him saved. 
and God gave him an earthquake. Hallelujah. It's true. So they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them. And he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. Here's a guy who was earlier is ready to commit suicide. Get saved. And now he's just rejoicing. Astounding story of God's intervention in, in difficult situations, as well as God's protection, right, for Paul and Silas and for his people. So when we, when we talk about the fulfillment of the Great Commission, it must be preceded by prayer, engaged in by prayer. It must be bathed in prayer. It must be an a act of prayer, a warfare of prayer. Because... Through prayer, God sends workers. Through prayer, God gives power. Through prayer, God grants boldness. Through prayer, God provides guidance. Through prayer, God appoints and sets apart. Through prayer, God intervenes and protects. Through prayer, God saves. God saves. Let me uh, close with a a quote by... um, an author. William Crosby, it says, It is the incoming of God's life that raises that level, that refreshes and invigorates springs of progress that improves society. You're listening? That elevates and strengthens the moral tone. Now, well, I won't come on that. That gives, listen, that gives success to the gospel and that fits and qualifies the church for the triumphant accomplishment of her mission in the world. It is the incoming of God's life. And the lesson of the last century, this is actually written in the 19th century, the lesson of the last century and the lesson of Pentecost and the lesson of all similar seasons of blessing is that the incoming of God's life is conditioned by prayer. The preliminary is prayer. The law is prayer. And it is not arbitrary, but in the very nature of things necessary. When, therefore, God's people give themselves to prayer, compelled by the heart's longings after God and after the salvation of men, genuine revival is near. In other words, when God's people pray, when God's people care, when God's people begin to get a burden for souls, when God's people begin to yearn out to God in prayer, then revival is near. And then he says to us, a challenge to us, the church in our day, shall we not then supply the condition, observe the law, prepare the way, cast out the stones, make it possible for God to bless us and to revive his work in the midst of years? He is summoning us to the duty and will therefore help us if we strive to do his will. 
He is eager to fill us with the Holy Ghost and is just waiting for us. So how much longer will he have to wait? How are we wronging our own souls and hindering God and standing in the way of the salvation of men? Let's stand and pray. Dear God, we desire to see men and women saved. We desire to see revival in our midst, in our hearts, in our families. Lord, as we pray for the world, remind us that we must first pray for ourselves. We must pray for the filling of your spirit, for power, for boldness, for guidance, for protection. God, we thank you. I thank you that you have entrusted your gospel to your church. That is a high and holy privilege. I pray, God, that we would be faithful to the trust that you have given us. And I pray that we would not hinder you. We would not hinder the salvation of men's souls. But, God, that we would be willing vessels of your mercy, willing channels of your grace, that we would be your mouth that speaks to them, your, your, your hand and arms that embraces them. Oh God, if, if, if we know in our heart of hearts, if we know that we, we, we don't care, we repent of that. We acknowledge, God, our indifference to the lost. We confess to you it is a sin. We confess, Lord, that it offends you and grieves your spirit. So forgive us, your people, God. And give us a new heart. Give us new eyes to see the fields. And give us... Most importantly, Lord, the the compassion of Jesus. The compassion of Jesus. That as he looked on the multitudes, he was moved for them. And Lord, we I ask finally that, that as we go into our own mission fields, that your spirit would fill us and guide us, and empower us, that we would be faithful, that we would be bold, that we would share your gospel with our neighbors, our co-workers, friends, family. And we look forward to seeing you save. And we thank you And we believe that the gospel is your power and the salvation. We believe the gospel saves. We pray all these things. Your name, for your glory. Amen.